everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at AEI. And today we have joined with us a very special guest, Jason Riley, who is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and fellow at the Manhattan Institute and also happens to be my husband. Welcome, Jason. (laughs) Thank you. So today, we're going to start by talking about what will seem like some old news, but some important news that we did not want to let pass without notice here on the podcast. A couple of weeks ago, the University of California system decided that they were going to stop using the SAT in determining who gets admitted to University of California schools. You know, this has been going on at schools around the country for a while now. A lot of schools have gone test optional or have said they're just not interested in the SAT scores. And the claim, of course, is that the SAT test is racist and is hurting minority students. So we brought on Jason, who wrote a column a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal about this, and we wanted to ask him about that claim. And it's racist to some, right? It's unfair to poor Black and Hispanic students. Is it unfair, Jason? No, life is unfair, I think, and the test reflects different backgrounds and the different things that have gone on in the kid's life before they sat down to take that test. It's an important point to make that just because the test shows us that these disparities exist doesn't mean that the test itself is the cause of the disparities. These can start quite young, white, you know, before kids even, even enter school and studies done that the amount of words a child hears per hour at home can be determined vast disparities between children of welfare, parents versus children of professionals. Millions, tens of millions of more words being heard by the children of professionals. And, and not only that, but the number of positive words that the child hears versus negative words that the child hears. So that after a few years, a 10-year-old child of parents on welfare will not have heard as many words as a three-year-old child of professional parents. So when you think about, you know, where these disparities start, why would anyone be surprised that 17 and 18-year-old kids are not scoring similarly on the SAT test? Well, what about this, this claim that the SAT is asking about words that some kids just wouldn't have been exposed to because of the culture? The example that you used in your column was actually from an old SAT test from a long time ago. It asked kids to use analogies, and one of the words used in the question was regatta. So this was clearly a a sign that you would not have heard this word if you were not living in a very ritzy, upper-class, white suburb. There is that claim that the test is culturally loaded. The problem is that that's just not borne out. The largest black-white differences that we see on the test are not on the questions that assume some sort of middle-class vocabulary or privileged upbringing. They're found in questions that test spatial skills, abstract questions, in fact, is where we see the largest disparities. But, you know, these are all very old, old arguments that have been thrown at the SAT for decades. But what we know is that the test is very good at doing what it is designed to do, which is assessing high school students' readiness for freshman year in college and predicting outcomes from whether they'll complete that freshman year to what kind of grades they will get. And study after study after study, going back decades, shows that the SAT is a pretty good predictor of outcomes, regardless of the race of the student or the ethnic background of the student taking the test. So again, the the complaint is that 
we don't see more racial parity in outcomes on these tests. And of course, why would you expect to see that? My frustration is that wherever these Black and Hispanic kids are, wherever they want to go, wherever we want them to go academically, they need to get there from where they are now, not from where we hope they are or wish they are. And to the extent that you eliminate this test, you're simply obscuring where they really are. And, and that's not helping anyone. But Jason, are you kidding me? You know, by any means necessary, the University of California wants to achieve a certain racial demographic makeup of its schools. So how do they do that without just eliminating this SAT, which is revealing disparities, but that disparities be damned. We want to we want a certain makeup. Well, it's interesting, and it's not really a hypothetical anymore, because we've had a sort of four and a half decade experiment on what would happen if the University of California system eliminated racial preferences in college admissions. And they did that back in 1996. They passed something called Proposition 209. And what we saw in the aftermath of that decision was an increase not only in minority enrollment in the University of California schools, but also tremendous increases in graduation rates of Black and Hispanic kids from those schools, including in the more difficult STEM fields of math and science and engineering and so forth. So in the absence of racial preferences, we saw outcomes improve for these minority kids. And what was happening is that the kids were attending schools that better matched their skills, that better matched what they were prepared for. So at some of the flagship, at the two flagship universities, Berkeley and UCLA, were to the most selective, you saw minority enrollment go down, but it went up throughout the system overall. And frankly, I don't see the point in, in, in sending some kid to Berkeley to flunk out when he could be thriving at UC Riverside. I mean, what, what is the goal here? That's not just that they're flunking out, it's that there are these studies showing that, you know, these, these kids who are going to schools and they're actually interested in STEM fields, which are, of course, better paying jobs, especially right out of college, they're getting pushed into subjects that are easier. They're getting pushed into becoming sociology majors or African-American studies majors because they can't hack it in terms of the math skills that they need to succeed at the more elite schools. But when you look at the outcomes for kids who are graduating in STEM fields, you actually find that even kids who are going to less elite schools are still getting very high paying jobs and very, you know, going to very solid careers afterwards. So, you know, it's partly this obsession with making sure that kids are getting, you know, this elite brand. It's not even about ensuring their success in their careers or their financial success later on. It's just, you know, we have to make sure they have Berkeley degrees. So then in the absence of this objective standard, how should students be selected to get into our universities? What will happen in the absence of objective standards is they will use subjective standards. And, and that gets us back to why we have the SAT test to begin with. We have to remember why this test was initiated in the first place. And it was because we had subjective standards and college administrators were rampantly discriminating against Jews and other groups. And there was a push to make the standards objective. Again, I get back to if you are Black or Hispanic and you, and you are worried about a racist administrator, objective standards are your best friend. 
it's why Asian students are currently suing these universities now and pointing to the objective standards and saying, we perform on these objective standards you put forward, we can prove we perform on them, and we think that you are subjectively excluding us. And, and that is the basis of their argument. Because those standards to exist, they have an argument to make. All right. Well, we want to leave this subject for now, although there's much more to say about it, and turn to some other recent news. The rioting that has taken place in the last week and a half in the major cities in this country and some minor cities as well in the wake of George Floyd's murder. We wanted to talk about some of the messages that are being sent to kids, black kids, but also to white kids, about what we expect of their behavior. And so the other night, I was reading a Slate advice column, which is, I have a weakness for advice columns, as I think you you both may know by now. I read this advice column. A man wrote in to a parenting advice column saying that he suspected that his 15 and 17-year-old sons were sneaking out, had left the house without the permission of him and his wife, and one of them had come back with a brand new pair of sneakers and had some excuse about this, but he clearly knew that his son had stolen these during this looting that had taken place. And so the advice column, he was asking the advice columnist what to do. Should he have his son go to the police? Should he bring back the shoes to the store? And the advice columnist pretty much said, none of the above. You know, are you unaware of the 400 years of racism that have led your son to steal these shoes? It was quite striking, but but frankly, you know, it's actually not that unusual to read this kind of thing these days. So, so Ian, what, what was your reaction and what do you think are the messages that we're sending? And, and Jason, how are we going to ever dial this back? Honestly, it was unbelievable. I mean, the, you know, the father was asking a, a genuine question. And for the, the advice columnist to basically completely shut this father down and say, let's give your kid a pass because, you know, 400 years ago, there was black people were enslaved. So he should get a pass. Obviously, everything that we've all seen, what happened with George Floyd is heinous, unjustified, and every single one of those officers should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And when this happens in other situations, the same thing is the case. But for us to move from that to absolving kids, especially who are learning how to navigate this world, that there aren't consequences for disruptive behavior like looting. And, you know, imagine if this was a small business owner who could be someone who's worked their entire life to build up this business. And for this child not to understand that that's unacceptable behavior. The two things are not mutually exclusive. To condemn what happened to George Floyd and then condemning looting and stealing, I just thought it was stunning that this columnist would just absolve this child's behavior. So, Jason, I don't know what you think, but it's just (laughs) stunning what is happening. I agree with that entirely. And I I would just add that I, I don't think that the columnist really represents a thinking about these things, even among Blacks, even among Blacks in these communities. I don't know if if you two recall, a few years back, it might have been in the wake of Ferguson or Baltimore or the rioting there, but there was a mother caught on a video that went viral, found her son at one of these violent protests and went after him and pulled him out from the group. And they had a confrontation right there. And she was telling him, I told you you were not to be here and so forth. 
this, this, this exploded all over the place. Half the country is calling her the mother of the year. <laughs> and I, I think that that is much, much more representative of black parenting, frankly. Most black parents are not raising their kids to be revolutionaries or to take the law in their own hands when these sorts of things happen. They're raising them to behave themselves. And most black parents are successful at doing that. And that's the things I find so frustrating in the narrative that has taken place in the wake of the Floyd incident. It is that Floyd is typical of black people, that we leave the house every day scared to death of police, and, then, and that this just happens to us on a regular basis, what happened to this man. And that just is not, it's not borne out by any of the evidence that I've seen. We have no evidence of systematic use of lethal force in police departments across the country. There have been empirical studies of this done, and not just one or two, but several. In recent years, we have data showing that the use of lethal force by police has fallen dramatically over the past half century. In New York, where I'm based, the police regularly shot more than 300 people a year back in the early 1970s. Now it's down to around less than 20 a year. So we're talking about a dramatic 90-something percent, close to 90% reduction in police shootings over the past four and a half decades in the nation's largest city with the nation's largest police force. And you'll find similar numbers nationwide in other large cities with large black populations. So, you know, to the extent that you have a disproportionate number of encounters between black suspects and the police, I think stems from black crime rates, disproportionately high black crime rates, which draw police attention. And then these encounters go up, just probability dictates that something is going to go sideways some percentage of the time during these encounters. But again, I think if we want to do something about these encounters and something about the incidents like what happened at Floyd, we have to do something about addressing violent black crime rates in this country. And that's not a conversation a lot of people want to have. No, and it's it's also, this gets back to the question about the messages that we're sending. So, you know, this is a message about personal responsibility. I know, Ian, this is something that you're thinking a lot about with the kids at your school, about not only how do we, you know, how do we send them the message that, what did you say to me before, that they're they're not born with a knee on no, their kids, neck? Yeah, black kids aren't born with a with a police boot on their neck, you know? That, that, but, that's, but that's the message that we're sending to black inevitable. kids. And that's the message. And we're sending that message to white kids about black kids that 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 they are starting, you know, at this horrendous disadvantage and that they cannot be held accountable for anything that happens next. And it's not just misinformation or idle misinformation that we're putting out there. It's dangerous. It is why people are in the streets right now protesting. They're doing so based on misinformation. They've been told for decades that this is what happens to black people every day in this country, that they have a target on their back for police officers that are gunning for young black men. We've seen this with the, with the protests from professional athletes. It is just taken as a given. And again, I think the media does a very, very poor job of putting this into context. We, we read about all kinds of disparities in policing, racial disparities in policing, we do not read about racial disparities in crime rates, in criminal behavior that draws police attention. And you cannot have one conversation without the other and think you are telling the full story here. Yeah. And as someone who runs schools, I'm always concerned about what are the lessons that the next generation is really absorbing. The last thing we need is a generation of young kids, black or otherwise, 
that believe that they live in a world that's destined to their destruction, that they're victims of structural barriers that they don't have the ability to overcome. And that's why this whole idea of building agency has to become so important for kids. And the other thing I would just add that we're doing that's potentially extremely harmful is we are scapegoating police who are human beings and are going to behave like any human being who is being scapegoated. They're going to look out to protect themselves and their image. And what we have seen in the wake of these flare-ups that go viral and investigations of police departments come in in the wake of that, we've seen police draw back. We've seen less proactive policing. And that has resulted in spikes in crime and violent crime and homicides. And again, this has been documented in academic studies. And my fear is that we're going to have yet another incident where police pull back and even more Black lives are lost because these are the communities that need police protection the most. And and to the extent that we are blaming police for all of the social dysfunction in, in many of these communities, we're going to get less effective policing. I just want one other thing. A number of police departments, I think including Minneapolis, have announced that they're no longer that the school system is no longer going to contact the police or contract with the police anymore, that they're going to somehow sever their connection with the local police department. And you know, I was wondering, you know, I don't even know what to make of this, you know, whether this is this is even legally possible. I mean, I don't know who they're gonna call if they have some kind of emergency. But it is interesting that the schools are kind of, you know, standing, you know, on their high horse about this, you know, saying, you know, that they know the police are racist. And so they're going to they're going to cut off all contact with them. Yeah. Was that for you, Ian? Or? Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> are you, you know, kidding we, me? I, that truly, I mean, again, as someone who runs schools, and by the way, we have very strong relationship with our local police precincts partly because we want our kids to think about career paths, that, that this is an honorable profession. They also protect our community. And again, we all condemn the actions of clearly egregious police action, but to demonize the entire institution of police is a very short-sighted effort. What strikes me is that even if the protesters are completely successful in ending any kind of police involvement in the death of black suspects going forward. Let's say they, are, they, have, they have addressed such a small percentage of the overall problem. And I wonder about proportionality here. We know, again, from the research that police are involved in maybe 2 or 3% of black homicides in this country each year, 2 or 3%. 98% of black homicides in this country have nothing at all to do with law enforcement. So the protesters, if they are completely successful, will have solved about 2% of the problem. Again, I, I find this, their priorities to be completely out of whack. Where are the protests for the 98% of black homicides in this country that do not involve police? And again, that is not a message that filters down to the kids. It's not a message that the media is interested in putting out there. The priorities here are really, really out of whack. Racism exists, yes. Bad cops exist, yes. And we should root them out. But we should not lose, lose sight of the overall problem here and the proportion of that problem that involves police. 
All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can find this episode and previous ones on the AEI website or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.